as we think about Easter, I've been preaching these messages on Easter, um, really diving into this, uh, you know, the, the season of Easter, not just one day, but a whole season that we focus on the resurrection of Jesus. It may be surprising to you, especially since I'm a preacher, that there was a day when Easter wasn't really my favorite holiday. And I wasn't too crazy about Easter as a kid. Uh, for one thing, the Easter Bunny didn't bring you nearly as much stuff as Santa Claus did, right? And on Easter morning, you didn't have much time to play with what the Easter Bunny brought because you had to get all dressed up in your suit, yuck, and go to church. <laughs> and then after church, you had to stand outside with your family, squint into the sun, and get those family pictures. I hated that. And then there was the Easter egg hunt that afternoon. And boys and girls, let me tell you, Easter egg hunts back in the 80s were not what they were today. These weren't plastic eggs full of candy. No, these were cold, hard-boiled eggs that had been sitting out for an hour. So, and for like the rest of the week, you ate nothing but hard-boiled eggs. So when I was little as a kid, uh, the idea of a world without Easter probably wouldn't have bothered me that bad. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Jesus, I, I believed in the resurrection, but, you know, the, the marvel and the joy of the risen Christ was kind of lost on that seven- or eight-year-old David in the midst of all the other Easter stuff. So I never really considered what a world without Easter would have been like. Now, last week we looked at the New Testament evidence for the resurrection and how we can have certainty the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a historical reality and can be defended with great evidence, with great logic and reason. Well, this morning, I want us to consider the flip side of that coin, and that is the significance, the importance of that historical reality. What kind of difference does it make in our world that Jesus Christ has literally risen from the grave? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you will turn in your Bibles there, He's been dealing with believers who are denying the resurrection of the dead at Christ's return. Uh, now, that idea was as far-fetched to people back then in the Greco-Roman world as it is to many people today. To them, death was the end. The spirit ascended to a higher plane of existence and the body simply decayed. And so it broke Paul's heart that members of the Corinthian church were on one hand affirming the resurrection of Jesus, but on the other hand denying the possibility of their own future resurrection. And Paul's response is basically you can't have it both ways. You can't have one without the other. If there is no future resurrection for the believers in Christ, then you can't say there was a resurrection for Christ Himself. He says if Jesus has not been raised, then that changes everything. So I want us to look at Paul's argument in this passage to help us imagine a world without Easter, to help us understand how tragic things would be if Jesus had, in fact, not risen from the dead. And Paul tells us that, first of all, in verses 1 through 11, that a world without Easter is a world without the gospel. It'd be a world without the gospel, without that good news. So let's look at verses 1 through 11. He says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. So notice that Paul's purpose here is to remind them of the gospel they've already received. The good news he has already preached to them of God's saving work through Jesus Christ. And that is namely in verse 3 that Jesus, according to the Scriptures, died, was buried, and rose from the grave. And then Paul mentions the various people that the risen Christ appeared to and was seen by, including himself. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are essential to the gospel. Now, for most Christians, when we hear or give a gospel presentation, it goes something like this. Uh, God created you and He loves you. He is a holy God, but we are sinners. And we have fallen short of His glory. And because of our sin, we're separated from God and we deserve His wrath. We deserve eternal punishment because He is holy and we are sinful. But He is also loving. And so through Jesus Christ, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that Jesus died on the cross, He took our place, He paid the price for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And so if you will turn from your sin in confession and repentance and put your faith and trust in Jesus, by God's grace, you will be saved. And you will pass over from death to life. You'll be born again into the kingdom and family of God to live forever with Him someday. And that's a, a pretty typical basic gospel presentation. And everything I just said is true. But notice that I didn't mention at all the resurrection. In fact, most gospel presentations barely, if at all, mention the resurrection. Now, it's, it's natural to focus on the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ, right? He made atonement for our sins upon the cross. So naturally, we focus on that. Naturally, and we should take people to the cross, but we shouldn't leave them there. Paul's argument here is rather than taking people to the cross, we should take people through the cross to the empty tomb. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but we must not divorce His death from the subsequent resurrection. In Romans 10.9, which is one of the verses often that are included in a gospel presentation, it's sort of the climax of the Roman road if you use those verses to present the gospel. And in Romans 10.9, look what Paul says. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. Interestingly enough, Paul doesn't say anything about believing in your heart that Jesus died on the cross. Now, it's important that Jesus died on the cross, but if Jesus didn't die on the cross, there would be no need for a resurrection, right? So the cross is implied in Romans 10.9, but Paul's emphasis isn't on the fact that Jesus died, because guess what? We all die. No, the emphasis is on that Jesus rose from the dead that He is the risen Christ, that He is the living Lord. That's what matters. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no gospel. There'd be no good news because it would mean that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic, that He claimed to be the Son of God, but then He died and was buried in a grave and decayed there. 
Yeah, he said some good things, did a few miracles, died on the cross, and that's the end of the story. That's no good news. There's no gospel there. And in fact, in the rest of this passage, Paul further explains why there would be no good news if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There would be no gospel without Easter, but secondly, a world without Easter is a world where faith is futile. It's foolish. It's worthless. Look what he goes on to say in verses 12 through 17. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So Paul is pointing out the inconsistency here in the Corinthians' faith. They say they believed in Jesus' resurrection, yet claim there will be no resurrection for believers at the end of time. So if they're going to deny the possibility of their own future resurrection, Paul says, why are you defending Jesus' resurrection? Don't you see that they go hand in hand? If we, if we cannot be resurrected, Paul says, then Jesus could not be resurrected. Christ's resurrection, in other words, invalidates any philosophical objection to the idea of anyone's resurrection. If Jesus has been raised, it's so that someday we too can be raised, come back to life, never to die again. The concept of Jesus' bodily resurrection is essential to the gospel. Without it, the gospel would be false, is what he says in verse 13. In verse 14, he says preaching the gospel would be useless. And in verse 15, he says that anyone who preached the gospel would be guilty of spreading lies and testifying falsely against God. John Stott wrote, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. And he says if you remove it, then Christianity is destroyed. Christianity is a senseless religion without a risen Christ. And why would we waste our time believing a false religion and making ourselves liars? Paul says to do so is foolish. It's foolish. Now this argument, I think, struck home for the Corinthians because earlier in this, in this letter, Paul reminded them how their faith in this gospel, their faith in this good news of a risen Christ, how it has changed their lives. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these people, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is saying is that their transformed lives are proof of the risen Jesus Christ. To deny the resurrection is to deny the very faith that has changed them and made them who they are. The risen Christ is essential to our identity as Christians who have been transformed by the grace and power of God. 
How can a dead Jesus change anybody's life? What good is it to acknowledge and pay attention to and live by the words of? What good is it to worship and pray to a man who has died and decayed in a Middle Eastern tomb? Last week we looked at the quote from Timothy Keller where he said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why bother with anything that he said? That's why Paul says in verse 3 that the resurrection is of first importance. It's vital. What else can explain the amazing transformation that occurred in the lives of these disciples? What turned these milk-toast men into mighty martyrs for Christ? What changed Peter, the man who denied Jesus on the one hand, and a few days later he is standing in public preaching Jesus, he goes to prison for Jesus, he will eventually die for Jesus. What changed him? What radically transformed the faith of these Jewish people in the first centuries? If the resurrection was just a myth or a metaphor, why would the apostles have been willing to be martyred for it? That's why Paul argues that without the resurrection, our faith in Jesus is futile and foolish. I love how Paul ends this chapter. It's one of my favorite verses, uh, definitely in 1 Corinthians, if not the New Testament. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. Be unmovable. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain because of Jesus' resurrection, because of the promise then of our own resurrection and eternal life with Him. We do not labor in vain. We don't. Our faith is not futile. What we do in this life, what we experience, even what we suffer, it matters. None of it is pointless. It's not just some fate we must resign ourselves to. And for that reason, no matter what you're enduring today, no matter what uncertainty you might face tomorrow, there is hope. We can stand firm. We can be steadfast and immovable no matter what we face because Jesus Christ lives today. And He walks with you and He talks with you along life's narrow way. He lives this Amy Limley is here this morning and she has endured some things this past year and, and still faces some uncertainty about tomorrow. But she has stead, been steadfast. She has stood firm and endured because of the hope she has in the risen Jesus. And Amy's going to come now and share a word of testimony with us about that. Amy? He's a good one to have. One. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank all my care providers, uh, the prayer warriors for the, from the last year at least, and those who wrote notes and texts of encouragement for me. They meant more than you know um, during the past year. Uh, the thing that I wrote basically, uh, I've entitled it When and Even If. Um, God has been, is, and I'm confident will be good when I have ups and downs in my life. He was good when he brought me the best husband in the world, my two excellent children, and this church in town with such caring and praying people. God has been good when he has allowed me to see how my journey has encouraged others 
God was good, even if he allowed me to be diagnosed with cancer and Bob with chronic leukemia three weeks later. God was good when he led me to my two main doctors on this journey who are good and smart Christian people, Christian men. He was good when I went through chemotherapy and the dehydration and malnutrition caused by not being able to keep enough food and fluids inside my body. He was good even if he allowed me to go into shock and be admitted to the hospital for five weeks. He was good even if I can't remember a week of my life and when I almost died. He was good when I came home only to lie in my bed barely able to move for several months. He was good when I was struggling to learn to walk again. He was good when my new cancer staging showed the mass had disappeared on MRI. Uh, He was good when I went through the radiation and its side effects. God is good now when I'm nervous to take the next step, step, when I don't see his purpose in it, when I know he does have a purpose. The music group Mercy Me has encouraged me greatly during this journey. I will end with some words to their song, Even If. I know the sorrow, I know the hurt, would all go away if you just said the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Hold on, Amy. I want to I have a prayer. Let's okay. pray together. Father, we thank you so much for Amy and Bob. We thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness to you and their service in this church and community. And God, thank you for being good to them. Lord, through the, the ups and the downs, through the uncertainty and the sorrow, Lord, through the pain and the discomfort, And through this disease, God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and for the wonderful testimony that their life is of their faith in you and of your trustworthiness of that faith. God, continue to bless them and be with them and continue to give Amy the strength and the healing that she needs through this, Lord. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Because we do live in a world with an Easter, because we do worship and serve a living God, we can trust Him no matter what is coming. We can trust Him whether we see it or not. We can trust Him whether we understand it or not. We can trust Him whether things work out the way we want or not. We can trust Him because He is worthy of that trust. He is good. He is loving. And the gospel is true. Amen? Amen. Our faith is not futile. It is not in vain. It is not worthless because Jesus is alive and He is coming again. Another reason we must believe in the resurrection is because a world without Easter would be a world without forgiveness. A world without forgiveness. Look again there at verse 17. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. To me, this is probably the most sobering statement in this chapter. That that Jesus' death, yes, it is the basis of our justification, but that's not the end of the story. Paul wrote to the Romans that it is through Jesus' one righteous act that God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. You see, so the, the death, the crucifixion is essential obviously, to our salvation. 
But not only does the substitutionary death of Christ save, so does His resurrection. They go hand in glove. Think about our New Testament reading, which was from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come, has fallen on the church. He is filled with the Spirit. He's preaching the gospel openly in Jerusalem. 3,000 people believe that day and are saved and added to the church. Listen to what he said. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him and as you you yourselves know. In other words, you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amen. Amen. The resurrection is as crucial to the gospel as the crucifixion. Paul explains it this way in his letter to Romans, Romans 4, where he tells us that like Abraham, we are counted righteous by our faith. And he goes on to say, it will be credited to us us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And look at these two parts, these two essential parts of the act of salvation accomplished for us that Holy Week. He was delivered up, meaning crucified for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It takes both the cross and the empty tomb. By raising Jesus from the dead, what God the the Father did is He declared that His wrath was satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. He approved of this payment that His Son made for our sins and He showed that approval for Christ's substitutionary death by raising Him from the dead. And so directed toward all people who place themselves in Christ by faith is the grace of God. That is how we receive God's grace by faith. Our justification is a real consequence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if we are still in our sins, we can have no confidence, no assurance of our salvation. If we are still in our sins, we are lost for all of eternity. So I don't believe it's an overstatement to say that we are saved by the power of the cross and the reality of the empty tomb. It's both. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith would be futile, we would be lost in our sins and guilty in the eyes of God. We'd have no relationship with God, we'd have no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we'd bear no spiritual fruit, and our eternal destiny would be damnation and separation from God forever in hell. A world without Easter would be a world without forgiveness. And finally, that means it would be a world without hope. It would be a world without hope. Look what he says in verses 18 and 19. Those then, in other words, so he's saying that if we are still in our sins, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You know, the hardest funerals I ever preach are for those who I'm certain did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I cannot imagine preaching funerals in a world without Easter, a world without hope, 
The resurrection of Christ gives us the hope that death is not the end of the story, that there's another chapter, an ongoing chapter, that never ends. Paul tells us the Corinthians, he says that we have, if we have only hope for this life, we're pitiful. Because that means there's no hope for our loved ones who have gone ahead of us, who have fallen asleep in Christ. Without the resurrection, Paul says, they're gone. They're lost forever. No reunion, no seeing them again someday. It's over. It is only because Jesus Christ rose from the dead that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Only because of the risen Jesus can we say that we desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Look at verses 20 through 23. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ's resurrection is like the first fruits of a great harvest that will come at the end of time. And Paul says that just as death came through Adam's sin, so life comes through the second Adam's death and resurrection. Because of what Jesus did, life is given to us just as much as because of what Adam did, death comes to us. But apart from the risen Jesus, there is no future hope. Paul uses some strong language in verse 19 when he says that if Christ has not been raised, we of all people are most pitiful. We are to be pitied the most of all people because if our hope in Christ fails to extend beyond this present life, how tragic and sad is that? Now, I've heard preachers say before things like, you know, living the Christian life is, is worthwhile living. Even if you die and find, and find out that none of this is true, it's still been worth it to live the, the Christian way of life. And I understand the sentiment behind that. And I think that's something that maybe can, can sound good to 21st century American ears because, let's be honest, we've had to suffer and sacrifice very little for the cause of Christ. But in many places around this world and in many times in history past, to be a follower of Jesus Christ meant suffering and persecution. It meant you lost your, your land and your home. It meant you lost your job and your reputation. It meant you lost your family and your friends. It meant you were beaten and imprisoned and even lost your life. Now imagine that you experienced all that. You left behind house and jobs. You were abandoned by family and friends. You've suffered ridicule and shame for the name of Jesus. You're thrown in jail. You're beaten. And then you're hung on your own cross for Jesus. Let's say you experience all of that and you die and you find out you die and that's it. And none of this was true. And there is no afterlife. And there is no resurrection. So not only are you not getting any future eternal benefit for being a Christian, but you also forsook all the pleasures of life in this world. Would you not be the most pitiful person that ever lived? Yes, I do believe that living the Christian life is the best life now. We have abundant life now through Jesus. But listen, it means nothing if there's not eternal life tomorrow. We 
serve a risen Jesus. And because of that, there is hope, not just for today, but for tomorrow and the next day and the next day, for tens of millions of years and on, because Jesus Christ is risen. A world without Easter would be a world without the good news of the gospel. It would be a world where faith is worthless, where there is no forgiveness and there is no hope. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Thanks be to God, there is an Easter. And guess what? The tomb is still empty. And for that reason, we have hope. For that reason, our faith is not futile. For that reason, we can have forgiveness. And for that reason, there is good news. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 what Jesus accomplished on Good Friday. When He hung on the cross, He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, Paul says, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, on Good Friday, as Jesus died on that cross, what seemed to be a defeat, Jesus was Himself defeating the enemies of God and our enemies. He was defeating sin and He was defeating hell. He was defeating Satan. He was triumphing over the enemies of God and over our enemies on Good Friday. But guess what? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that on Easter Sunday, He also defeated an enemy. Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus destroyed death itself by rising from the grave that Easter Sunday morning. That's why the empty tomb is good news. And so even though our bodies may experience temporary death, what Paul calls falling asleep in Jesus, he uses that language to to, to indicate to us that for the believer, death is temporary. It's like going to sleep at night. You're going to wake up in the morning. And so when we die and our bodies are put into the grave, it's not the end of the story. It's just a pause. It's a temporary thing because Christ is coming back again. The dead in Christ will be raised first and we will live together forever with Him in the new heavens and the new earth in bodies that will never get sick and never grow old and never die. Now we're going to look more into this next week. Next week's sermon, we're going to look at what happens after our death. We're going to look at the future hope of our own resurrection. But because of what Jesus has done, we can look death in the face knowing it has no final victory, knowing that it has no sting. That's why Paul goes on in verses 54 through 56 of chapter 15. He says, When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Which, remember, in Colossians 2, Paul says Jesus took to the cross, and He he put those to death on the cross, right? He overcame that on the cross for us. And then he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory not just over the law, victory not just over sin and hell and Satan, but victory over death itself. I have some good news and some bad news this morning. The bad news is that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, effectively, you live in a world without Easter. If your faith 
is in yourself, if it's in your good works, if it's in the faith of your parents, your faith is futile. It's worthless. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no forgiveness. You are in your sins. And apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope. There is no hope for your future. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, you can only benefit from the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus if you put your faith and trust in Him. Then, and only then, when you belong to Jesus, can you benefit from what He accomplished. That's the bad news. But the good news is, you can benefit from it. The good news is, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is, you can have that hope and that forgiveness and experience the good news of the Gospel when you turn from your sin and put your trust in the One who died, was buried, and rose from the grave and is coming again for you. How do you do that? Well, first, you have to admit that you need a Savior. Admit your reality that you are lost in your sin, that apart from Christ you have no hope. Admit that you need Him. Believe in your heart that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross for your sins and God raised Him from the dead on the third day. And He did all that because He loves you. And then simply call. Call upon the One who made it possible for you to have the hope of eternal life, to know the joy and the peace of forgiveness, to live in a world full of bad news, knowing that it doesn't get the last word, the good news does. Admit your need for Jesus. Believe in who He is and what He did for you, that He died and rose from the dead, and call upon Him. And the Bible says you will be saved. Now maybe there's someone in this room or listening at home that needs to do that today. And I invite you in just a moment, either in the privacy of your home or to come down front to this altar, I'll be standing down here in a moment and just say, I need Jesus. And Jesus, I believe you died and rose from the dead for me. And I pray you would forgive me of my sins, come and live in me as my living Lord and Savior, and help me to be the person you want me to be. It's a simple statement of faith in who Jesus is and what He does. And if you would do that today, you will be saved. You will know the good news. You will live in a world with an empty tomb, with Easter, with Jesus Christ living in your heart. And I pray you would do that today. Maybe God is speaking to you in some other way, to unite with this church, to rededicate your life to Him, to go out these doors and share this good news with other people that you know need to hear it. Because guess what? The good news is only good news if it's proclaimed if it's heard. Because apart from the hearing of the gospel, how can anyone be saved? God has given us that charge to proclaim this good news everywhere we go. Like Mary, like the other women at the tomb that morning, like Peter and John and the other disciples, when they met the risen Christ, what did they do? They told other people about it. Maybe that's what God is convicting you of this morning. Whatever God is speaking to you, I hope will be obedient. So let's stand together, let's pray, and you come as God leads you. Father, we are thankful that we do live in a world with Easter. We live in a world post-empty tomb, a world in which there's a reality that Jesus Christ, God become man, died a real death, 
and rose bodily from the dead, never to die again. God, that changes everything. And because of what Jesus did on that Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we can have hope. We can know forgiveness. We can live a life of powerful faith. And we can experience the good news of Your grace. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to do that for the first time today, to come and to put their trust in what Jesus has accomplished for them, I pray they would do it, Lord. And God, I pray You would burden us for those around us that are lost. God, that we would share the good news with them. And God, I pray You would help all of us to be strong in our faith, to stand firm and be unmovable no matter what we face, no matter what we experience. That because of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, we can know that no matter what comes, You are good and You are loving and You will never leave us and You will never forsake us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,